Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of our show. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for being with us today. Today's guest is Di Manuel. He is an author, a blogger. He's all about inspiring, true, authentic, vulnerable masculinity. Uh, and uh, he's here today to share us his story, how he got to where he is, and, and why he, he made the decisions that he did to bring him to where he is. You can check out his website, diemanuel.com. It's uh, sort of like a blog. And, uh, and you can access his, his men's groups that he does on Mondays. So you just got to message him to get on board there. I had a really enriching conversation with him, and I hope you enjoy it. And uh, once again, thank you for listening. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind, and you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, I am joined by my friend, Di Manuel. Is that, did I get that right? You got that perfectly right, Robert. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate practice. it. <laughs> thank you for being on the show, my friend. Oh man, thank you. And thank you for creating a platform that oh, makes these conversations more regular. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just, we need more of these. And uh, I really applaud you for, for everything that you're doing. And it's an absolute honor to be here. So uh, I'm stoked. I'm stoked. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's high accolade there. So <laughs> now you reached out and, uh, and, and I get the sense that you're very much, um, you're all about understanding of self and, and mm -hmm. sort of, um, bringing masculinity uh, out of the sort of this this machismo whatever it is into something that's a little bit more vulnerable a little bit more pure is that right so tell us a little bit about the work that you do wow well first of all uh yeah you, you know it's masculinity is an interesting term just a word right yeah. like and it's usually what do we have attached to the words and and often a lot of us have different ideas of what words mean based on our own personal experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know for myself, when I would often think of the word masculinity, you know, it, and I would often attach that to being, yeah. Well, first of all, the mask <laughs> aspect right. of masculinity, but also secondly, uh, second to that is, is this idea that I, I believe that there were certain aspects of being a man such uh, that that were often echoed by the synonyms synonyms of a word like masculinity like machismo which you said right like it's actually one of the listed synonyms as well as strength vigor right like when we start hearing certain words like the very powerful words strong words but nowhere in the list of synonyms did i see words like kindness loving caring you know <laughs> vulnerable yeah. right passionate yeah exactly so there were certain words right? <laughs> well and it made me wonder well if this is our general understanding of the term does this affect how we act you know does it affect or influence our perspective on things and i know we talk about cliches right like and when i think about my own life yeah the last decade i've spent a lot of inner uh, well time focusing on the inner world, right? Like we do, if you think about our life, like everything that we learn, we learn through experience. We really do. Mm -hmm. Whether we hear it, we watch it, you know, whether we touch it, maybe we manipulate something or work through something physically. Either way, it, it's, reading it a or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's an experience, right? Yeah. Oh, 
all of it, right? And, and, and yet a lot of our own personal experiences and the emotions attached during those experiences often will form an opinion. And right. we, we joke about some of the stereotypes, the cliches around men, you know, like men don't cry, mm. you know, like don't cry. It's a shine of weakness. You know, don't be vulnerable. Vulnerability is a weakness. It'll be used against you, you know, like, and so we have this idea perpetrated or perpetuated, I should say, uh, throughout time, at least in my own experience, that's what I noticed. Now, why and, do you think, yeah. sorry to cut you off, but yeah, no, no. Please. Why do you think that you, men need to like, you know, have a stiff upper lip, this kind of like, nothing hurts me. Why, why do we have that? How did we get here? Well, and that's super interesting because there is a lot of, of literature and a lot of work, bodies of work that sort of speak to this evolution, if you will, of man. And when I mean man, I mean, I'm talking about the gender specific men, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the male centric world specifically, you know, like, and how our world has shifted quite a bit. But I mean, you could go back to Paleolithic days, and, and we could talk about us being hunters and gatherers, right, and wanting to provide and protect our families. And, and obviously, we've morph that quite a bit, but there's still that underlying desire to want to be a protector or want to be a provider. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. I'm not here to say anything against that, but obviously with that sort of bravado, if you will, or this, this opinion that we're leaning into of what it means to be a man with some of these expectations, these, these very specific roles, if you will. And, and there's certain emotions that don't necessarily fit into that, or at least they've never been aligned with that in, in our general understanding of what it means to be a man. Like, it's just not something that we typically talk about, right? Like we, we talk about men being strong, being protectors, being the hunter-gatherers, being there to provide for their family. And, you know, like, and even if you think about soldiers and warfare and, and some of these other industries yeah. that are very male-centric, like well, there's there certain characteristics that are perpetrated, right? Or sorry, I keep saying perpetrated, but perpetuated, but, you know, through those roles. Yes. But, but, you know, and so we have to start to wonder, well, what, what does it mean? Like, and just for me, like as a dad of two daughters, right? Like I just, mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I feel this natural desire to want to be, you know, uh, sensitive to my daughters, to be empathetic to some of their situations because you want to protect them. But yes. I, I was conflicted with how do I reconcile this? Because my own just, and I'll just finish this so you can ask your question, Robert. But for me, a lot of my habits and my belief systems were role modeled to me by the first men in my life. Bottom right. line, you know, and, and I think that's where people have to start is looking at their own situation, looking at how they were raised. Mm. Because I think a lot of our habits and our belief systems are definitely influenced and, and their origins are deeply rooted in typically our upbringing and what was modeled. And my father, you know, his parents didn't show a lot of affection, you know, like they were proud of them. They would not typically say they love you. They would not typically caress or hold, you know, right. like no big hugs, like they just the way that it was modeled. And, and so my dad, even with my brother and I, you know, there was a, a limited amount of emoting, and, and yet when I would see him and my mom sometimes get into to, to arguments, I remember this before they, they separated and eventually divorced when I got around the age of 10. But leading up to that, I remember them having some pretty big disagreements, you know, passionate mm -hmm. fights, you know. And my dad would be very quick to ghost. 
So he would turn around and leave the situation rather than work through the situation. And, and so he had this, uh, he didn't like conflict. He would avoid conflict. And right. I remember seeing this. And, and so all of a sudden later on into my teen years and into my twenties, even into my thirties, I've seen this habit. And like, and sometimes I do it without even realizing it, but I would avoid the tough conversations, even with my own daughters, with my wife. And, and I'm like, well, why? Well, it's just because I've never been taught anything other than that, right? That, that, that's my, my response. Like we have habits, right? There's a trigger. We have then an action that we do, a habit, and then it usually produces some sort of result. Right. We don't like the result. We have to look backwards at, well, what was the trigger and what was the habit? Because in changing those, or at least the habit, we can probably produce a different result. And so I started looking at my own life and taking inventory on what are the things that I'm doing unconditionally, um, subconsciously, without even knowing that I'm doing it. And yet it's providing a lot of additional stress, maybe creating more space for sadness or regret or self-doubt, you know, those, we put ourselves in those situations, right? So um, anyways, that's me sort of ambling. Like, I'm not here to say that this is the way it is, but definitely from my perspective and what I've noticed is I've been having more and more of these conversations the last few years with other men, there's something to this. You know, I, I think we all have this deep desire to want to be more connected you know, I, at least majority of men that I'm seeing anyways, yeah. uh, I'm not saying that this is a given across the board. I, I will never make a blanket statement like that, but from the circles that I'm getting around and the people that I'm having conversations with on this front, especially around our men's groups that have been meeting every Monday for over two and a half years. Now we come together Monday dinner discussion. Uh, now it's on zoom, obviously based on the nature of the last year we've had. Uh, but we have, aspirations of meeting in person again and it's, it's just such a, a wonderful community of guys coming together just to have these these authentic and transparent and and real conversations right well they, well there's something totally empowering about being honest you know just putting it out there and saying you know hey this is it right like mm. but when we have to kind of hold on to things right when we have to be guarded mm. That's a, that's a very stressful place to live in our minds, in our bodies. Um, and having this group where we can just say it like it is, this group that you have where you can say it like it is around other people who, you know, maybe they can say, yeah, no, I've experienced that too. But nothing is worse than feeling like you're the only person experiencing uh, something adverse. Mm. And I think there's a lot of that going on in the world today. I mean, Man. we really put out, uh, our highlight reel, you know, yeah, right. social media and stuff. Like, yeah, we don't put out like today I woke up and uh, I couldn't find my keys and, you know, I was swearing at my wife. You know what I mean? We don't put out our lowlights. We put out our highlights and that's an artificial place to be. Yes. Oh, well said. You know what? You're right. And uh, we, we definitely shield and shelter, right? Right. Uh, we, we do both very well. We, we conceal certain elements uh, that we don't want to have shown in, in fear of well, either being used against us. Uh, but also we, there's a lot of fear around judgment, right? Like there really is. And I mean, we talk about the fear of the unknown, fear of success. I mean, there's all these different types of fears, but I, the fear of judgment, I think is a real, man, it limited me a lot. You know, mm. well, I was always concerned about what other people thought of me all the how, time. How do you overcome that? Well, this is the thing. And I think it really comes from doing a lot of that inner work, right? Like realizing whose opinion really matters to me at the end of the day, you know, like, and, and really when I 
got super clear on that, really all I cared about was my immediate family. Right. Like really, you know, like no one knows me better than they do. There, there's that unconditional love aspect as well, you know, which works both directions, <laughs> me to them and them to me. And really at the end of the day, I was like, who do I want on the journey with me till the very mm. end? And it was these people, you know, so family really matters to me a lot. And, and I remember back in the day, like I worked a lot, you know, building my last company and, and uh, my kids were quite young at the time and just dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety and, and just, you know, wanting to be a good dad, wanting to be a, a better than a good man, but be a great man. And, and I put all these like expectations on myself right. as well, right? Like we, we, we take a term like success and then we, we give it meaning. And sometimes we have to wonder what, what was the incentive or what was the main foundation for us giving it meaning the way we did. And what I mean by this is like, I, 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 there's a book, probably the, the most impactful book I've read in the last decade is by a gentleman by the name of Victor Frankl. Oh yeah, man. Search yeah. for meaning. You know it, man. Like <laughs> it is one of the most impactful books I've read in the last decade and it, just phenomenal, you know, yeah. and, and it really gives you a great perspective on life. I love what you're saying because everything, and sorry to cut you off, but no, no, please go everything ahead. is a choice, right? Yes. People, yes. um, like we, we hold on to things and I think it's cause it's comfortable. Like mm. these things that bring us absolute misery, we hold on to like, uh, you know, this girl that I dated when I was 18, she broke my heart, dude, you're 35, right? Like find yeah. something better here and now. I mean, that's the yes. other one, uh, um, Eckhart Tolle, Eckhart right? Tolle. The power yeah. of now, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. And, oh, and, yeah. and what are you doing with the time? Because, because for example, 2020, so many people are like, this has been such a terrible year. Well, first of all, you're alive, you mm -hmm. know, be thankful for that. I'm very thankful I'm alive. And, and yes, it's been, you know, it's been adverse, but what am I doing with the time that I, I have? This is a, a great yes. time for me to read books, to grow, you know, stop looking at, at, at all the things that are not there. Yeah the things that are are absent and look at the opportunities that you have. I mean, I'm having this conversation with you right now, mm. you know, how privileged and not in a negative sense, like I'm so privileged, but like I am privileged. Do you know what I mean? Like I am mm. so grateful for what I have. And there are moments in my life when I'm not grateful. Right. And then that's when I need to get back to, my purpose because yes. our minds our minds they they love to go to the past or to the future that's right both of which are not we have no dominion over <laughs> right we yeah. have no dominion over that but that's i think that's when the misery creeps up is when we go to a, a bygone time that we can never get back right i can't go back to eating cereal in 1998 <laughs> you know what i mean and, and having yeah. a carefree life i had yeah. worries then too Sure. You know, well, I'm, I'm romanticizing it, but then I want to go, I worry about the future and, and, you know, all this. So it's like when we bring ourselves into now, which mm -hmm. is something that, that I know you do with, with the, 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 the I can never say Vipassana. it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And, and that's all about being present. So 
Sorry, I went off on a tangent myself. No, you there, didn't. But... <laughs> that was amazing. And, and like, so true, like Viktor Frankl, like in his work, and for those that are listening or watching this, like you have to realize, just give you some context, you know, this guy survived the Holocaust. You know, like, I mean, he, he was passed around from camp to camp, even yeah. Auschwitz at one point, yeah. you know, like, and for anybody that has any sort of historical reference there, you know, World War II, especially the concentration camps, I mean, Millions. the survival rate was very low. And, and just what he saw and how he saw his, his, his people, his community, his friends, his families persecuted, you know, mm. by the Nazis, it, it was just phenomenal, but it, phenomenal from it, just uh, his ability to go into the situation and yet observe things as they were happening and then to be able to recount that in his book later on and in his works and his talks like the first half of the book just recounts his experience you know what he observed and not only himself but other people in the camps and and just really questioning humanity and the motivations and and what happens when we give up right when we lose that sense of a purpose in our life and, and that that sheer loss uh, to ourselves and that guiding light right and and then the second half he you know he really talks about logotherapy and this idea of really just aligning ourselves with the not only our passion but but more specifically our purpose and and i think this is the craziest thing and this is sort of why i brought it up is is anything that we're talking about right now it, you know like if you say to yourself like what's the meaning of life like asking the question itself is rather funny when you ask it to yourself, because really the best person to answer that is yourself, you know, because we ultimately give meaning to our own lives. Like it's not a matter of seeking something outside of us. It's actually creating the definition within us. Right. And, and getting that clarity on what is it that I want out of my life. And, and then actually starting to ask yourself the question, creating the space to, to, to explore and discover that. So how did you get to that though? How did you oh, come man. to yeah, because because your parents divorced when you're 10, and um, you know my father passed away when I was 14, so very different, right? Because when you lose a parent, like a parent dies, it's like, you know, you feel like that's just the way it is. Whereas when parents separate, you think like, well, is it something I did? You know what I mean in terms of the internal dialogue that's going on. So your parents divorced when you're 10. Is that when you started to sort of? Well, I withdrew a lot, yeah. for sure. Uh, there was definitely a lot of pain there. Um, you know, going from always having at least a parent around, you know, now my yeah. dad is living in his own place. We were going to see him every other weekend, but my dad worked a lot. So sometimes the every other weekend would turn into once a month, you know? And so there was that little piece, but then there was also the piece of my mom, you know, just not having that... Uh, Listen, I became an ear and a shoulder, you know, an ear to listen to my mom and, and be there to try to support her. But again, you know, I'm a preteen. Like I did not what have the emotional have? intelligence. And, yeah. and so sometimes, you know, we'd have some pretty tough conversations and it wasn't as much tough as just my mom having an outlet to sort of, uh, you know, and I appreciate that we'd have that, that ability to have those conversations. But, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, thinking back on it, some, I, 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 definitely believe I was too young to have some of those conversations. That was, that was a lot for me to carry and, you know, not pointing fingers at, at anyone, but I, I had learned very early on a different form of escapism and I found it through food and video games, you know, like that, that was my drug of choice, let's say, 
where, uh, you know, you get that direct dopamine hit, especially when you're eating a lot of sugary foods or right. highly processed foods, there's an in instant chemical boost in, in mentally, especially. And so I, I found that as a, a, it's a drug, man. Sugar it is a drug. It I don't care what I, anybody says. Oh man. And I used regularly. Okay. Yeah. And it and kills more like, people than, you know what I mean? It, it Cocaine, really all the, yeah. Oof. But they don't really talk about it, you know, because no. it's not, it's uh, never the sugar itself. It's usually the conditions that have been caused by yes. the, <laughs> and it's usually compounded with a lot of other lifestyle <laughs> factors too, but that's definitely a gateway to, to going down that path. And, and I was living it. I, I got to a point at age 14, the doctor pulling my mom aside at the doctor's office, Betty Ann, your son's morbidly obese. And I'm like, wow. Of course, I didn't know what morbidly, nor did I know what obese meant at that time. Um, I mean, even the term childhood obesity wasn't something that was every day. You know, like, I, again, I'm dating myself now, but this is over 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And 30 years ago, globally, the statistics around obesity yeah. and overweight was nothing like it is now. Like, yeah. Again, the trend was just there. The alarms were being sounded, but they didn't become full on and Tell, especially when social media became more prevalent. But even then, we still see the numbers going the wrong direction. So that, that's another conversation entirely. <laughs> but, but for myself, you know, up to the age of 14, that's how I would escape. I learned very quickly how I can manipulate my emotions given uh, any time I, I wanted by eating certain types of foods and playing video games or watching movies. Like it was that just escape. I'd avoid the world. And make a little bubble around me. And uh, it led to a lot of depression, other anxiety, social anxiety, like just a lot of uh, very low self-opinion, right? right? And, and uh, it was tough. Like, I mean, at 14, you know, what, what do most teenagers want? You know, again, you at 14 went through something extremely traumatic, you know, losing a father, losing a parent. Well, the, I'm not the other thing, my experience oh, at all to that, but it, no it's, it's, you know, how influential moments can be in our lives at that age because we are so much like a sponge, right? Kids should never, like 14 year old, here I am with a value statement saying never, <laughs> but it's a very dangerous place when kids question why they're alive. Right. Yes. You know, and, and it yeah. sounds like, I, I, I can't say I know this, but it sounds like you were kind of at that point. Yeah. Oh, I battle with those thoughts often, you right. know, like thinking it would be so much easier, you know, and, but I have to be honest with you, Robert, when I would think about that, I was more afraid of the idea of finality mm. of the unknown. Like, I mean, cause it was, there was a big unknown there. Well, is, is it really going to be better? <laughs> I can't hundred percent say yes. I don't know. And, and also, you know, you start thinking about family, you start thinking about, life and 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 just i'm not ready to to quit you know and and so then you're sort of faced with two options at least that's what i found when i in hindsight when i reflect on this you know years later reflecting on the, the process i went through to, to to literally just change my situation i started envisioning okay well i'm 14 almost 15 now this is how i am i'm dealing with all these health complications like my joints hurt i'm out of breath going up the stairs you know, I could barely bend over to tie my own shoes and I'm 14, you know, right. I had asthma that developed and got quite bad based on my state of unhealth. And so all these like health complications were riddling me and my, my ability, which affected my confidence in myself and my opinion of myself. And, and, and here I am thinking, okay, well, five years from now, do I think things will be better if I keep doing what I'm doing? And I had to be honest with myself. 
I was like, no, <laughs> I don't see it getting better. In fact, by 19, if I don't change things, I know it's going to be a lot worse than it is now. That scared the crap out of me. Yeah, it, it scared me. And and scared me so much that I was like, well, what's my only other option? I You're mean, slowly not, killing yourself, right? Well, that's what it was. But I didn't think of that like that. It just mm. like, I, but I didn't see happiness being something that I would have everyday access to. Where are we going with this, right? Like, where where are we exactly. going in this path? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, and and so that became a, a non-option. It was like, no, right. I, that, that's not. I'm I'm more afraid of this path than of this path over here, which is even more unknown to me, but less scary because it just involves me learning a new way of living. Yes. Learning a new way of nourishing myself, new way of coping with some of these stresses that I've been escaping or, or base. I just learned to medicate myself with food, right. And right. video games. And, and so all of a sudden I was like, okay, well, I want to make some changes. How do I do this? I, I don't know how, you know, I have no idea. And so it became a, a an idea around, well, what do I have to do to actually change my situation? Well, I'm going to have to learn some new things that I don't already know. So for me back then, it was going to the library, <laughs> you know, like going to the library, getting books on fitness and nutrition. And my kids laughed like, why'd you go to the library, dad? Why don't you just Google it? I'm like, I'm older than Google, you know? So <laughs> it's hit to put things in perspective. Right. Uh, it wasn't a, we didn't have the internet like we do now back then. And, and so I remember getting these books and just reading consuming the content and and trying to understand how does this help me my parents so, finally you know became very supportive they bought me a mountain bike so i just want to acknowledge my parents you know they were very supportive because they finally saw that it was me making the decision to change for me right. it wasn't them saying hey can we put you in karate oh what about this sports oh you know your friend's got a gym membership do you want a gym membership you know every time they would come to me offering me these things i was like no and i'd be really mean because i took it as a personal attack yeah. i took it as a value statement you think i'm Oh gosh, man. Totally. Just like, ah, no, no, no. And, but this finally they saw in me that I had something had flipped. Right. And, and they were like, yeah, he wants to do this because he wants to do it. He want <laughs> awesome. exactly. He wanted it. Right. So yes. when you, when you decided that you wanted to change your life, that you wanted this, right. You wanted your life and to the, the best potential you could, you know, reach it achieve it hey, and i gotta be honest with you my big motivation was i wanted a girlfriend okay ah, no, I mean, <laughs> no. that's where i was I, going. i'm just gonna be yeah, straight yeah. up like i know it sounds really but i have to be honest at 14 almost 15 i yeah. I, I did i i had an interest in girls of course uh, it, mm. but i didn't believe that any girl would ever want me and, and so you know when and after working with counselors and psychologists especially you know about 10 years ago really embracing the support from someone else uh, and i'll talk about that in a second but i i knew that back then you know that was just a cry for me wanting to be loved wanting to be desired right and because i didn't even want me i didn't desire me so how could i even believe that anybody else would so there was a lot going on under, underneath the the hood so to speak yes. uh, uh and but you know I, I just started to move my body. I, I started to exercise every day. It wasn't super intense stuff, but for me, where I was at, it was intense. Mm -hmm. You know, like even just going out for a mountain bike just around the neighborhood was challenging. There was one big ass hill, you know, and I remember coming to that hill and, and getting a third of the way up the very first time I came to it and having to stop and walk my bike up to the top. But I came back the next day, tried it again, tried it again, you know, three and a half weeks in, I remember summiting that, that, 
top of that that hill you know it's nothing like here in bc right bc you go to the north shore especially it's like now those are hills that's a mountain uh <laughs> this is ontario rural ontario it right. was a big enough hill concession hill and, and and it was big enough that i was like whoo you know on a bike for me at that state it was it was bigger than everest right like that in my mind it was like whoa but it, making it to the top of that mountain three and a half weeks in of being consistent with some some change of direction all of a sudden i had major buy-in because i'd seen the reward. results i started seen to results. get a new I experienced reward. Them. Yeah. yeah yeah all of a sudden i was like whoa this yeah. is working I'm we don't we don't do things if we're not getting something out of them right we we want to see results you know yeah. it's it's hard to stay That's motivated you know, it's hard to stay motivated. It really is. And, and, and so I am someone that's very geared towards results, seeing positive adaptation, seeing some uh, fruit from my labors, right? right. You, you know, like I really want to see that. It, it gets me excited. It, it makes me confident. You know, it also allows me to seek more clarity as to if I'm not seeing results, then I have to ask myself, why am I not seeing the expected results? Mm. Okay, well, maybe something in the process there needs to be tweaked or optimize, you know, but, but the cool thing is, and sorry to, to, to keep talking about this story from long ago, but it was in that experience over 20 months of just changing little micro changes every day, you know, moving my body a little bit, changing a little bit on how I ate <laughs> and what I would drink. Also started to feed my mind with some certain types of things, you know, started to read a lot more, started to, to listen to motivational talks. You know, I remember getting books on tape <laughs> from the library, like just changing the inputs. Yeah. Because that ultimately influenced a lot of the outputs, you know, especially for myself personally. And, and so 20 months later, I'd realized this new life, you know, like it, I, all of a sudden it was like, I wasn't even thinking about working. I wasn't thinking about eating a certain way. It was, it was just, just what were. I did. Yeah. It was like, how, I, I how, went, how old were you? You were 14 when this, this uh, 14, almost 15 when I started. Gotcha. And then by the time I got to the point where I was like, really, I, I just, it was about 20 months. So just, just around 17, I was like, I got this. Like Which I got is a this. huge chunk of time in it is, a at that time of life. life. Oh gosh, right. man, it's huge, right? Because like, it was from the age of nine to 14, I'd put on that weight. So right. for me, that five years of the first 15 years of my life, I mean, it's a third of my life I spent in that state of, of dealing with stress, anxiety by eating, mm -hmm. <laughs> by watching movies or playing video games. And, and I had to do a, a complete paradigm shift without knowing if it was going to work. And, and, and so there's three questions I always tell people, you know, if you're going to encounter change in your life, and when I say encounter, you know, you will, I mean, Buddha said, it's the only thing that we know is absolutely true is impermanence. Nothing stays as it is. Yeah. Dr. Tolley talks about it in his book too, Power of Now. It's like, it's the only thing we know is hundred percent sure. We're hundred percent certain that nothing stays as it is. Yeah. Over time, things change. Right. And the more we fight change, <laughs> usually- we do. We, we create more opportunity for regret and, and a lot of other negative emotions uh, because there's that loss, right? That fear of loss and then the actualized loss, uh, you know, even the good times, right? Like, and that's why I always say to people, it's like, you know, when you hear the term, this too shall pass, it's almost cliche now. But I, I just want people to realize when Buddha said that 2,500 years ago, he wasn't talking about just the bad stuff in our lives, the challenging things, the character building events that really define a lot of who we become, but also the amazing moments in our lives, those special birthdays, those anniversaries, those moments where your daughter walks for the very first time, right? The first time she says, Papa, Dad, Daddy, like 
those moments also will pass. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's this, it's just this idea of really getting centered on who you are right now. Not say don't vision, don't have a vision, like have a vision, have some goals, lean into that. Let that influence how you make the best of today and right, right now with the intention that it's going to influence my potential tomorrows. But, you know, so it's a different way of looking at things. And, and I didn't really come to that realization until about 10 years ago when I embraced the idea of doing more inner work. Cause I got really good at working on the surface. Like Robert, that's the problem with the fitness industry. You know, I mean, it's, I'll be the first to say that it's got its issues. You know, it's a very young industry, really the fitness industry period. Like you think about gyms, people working out in a gym. I mean, that started in the early eighties. So in the whole scope of things, you know, we're not even full of full lifetime of people adopting healthy, active living, right. And having these outlets to go work out and, and be active. But even then it's all based on the physical. Well, so good at quantifying things. What's your waist size? How much on the bench press? How fast can you run a mile? You know, what's your body weight? Like, Oh my God. And there's a lot of judgment that I kind of notice around. Oh, you're doing that. And it's like, yeah. And, and, and just to kind of, um, parallel what you're saying when I was 14 I developed uh, an eating disorder wow. and this is something that that guys just don't talk about right yeah. like they don't yeah. talk and and it's real man there's some serious you know there's have you ever heard of bigorexia right like oh my mind yeah. gotta get big and jacked yes and then yeah. nobody will mess with me and then yeah. you get big and jacked or whatever for me it was like I saw men Right. Cause that's right around when my father died. I saw examples of men, uh, you know, in film and they're all ripped yeah. and I'm like, well, I, I'm a chunky kid. So I'm just, I'm going to eat low calorie foods. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, a, a like a skeleton pretty much. I w- wasn't full blown anorexia. I was never diagnosed, yeah. but it was like looking back, dude, it was a, it was an eating disorder. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a teenage boy. Like I'm supposed to be eating kind of thing. And then there was a moment, I think I was 17 and I said, no, fuck this man. Like, so I started going to the gym and then I changed things and then boom, my confidence, it came back. But there is something around, again, what you're saying, what it means to be a man. And then we associate that with a certain physique Mm. and how do we kind of get, how do we develop a healthier relationship with the physique of being a man? Right. That's one of my, that's one of my, and you, and you just had me thinking about that too. And, uh, and that, remarkable. Yeah. You know, what you learned through that experience though, right? Like if you think about how that's probably influenced your way of attacking certain things now, right? Like, I mean, yeah. I, there's certain things that we experience and, and it forever changes how we look at certain things, right? Certain challenges, certain yeah. ways of being. Like there's those milestone moments in our lives. And I always invite people, I'm like, hey, have you really thought about your life to now? Like, can you think about those moments where all of a sudden something that was kind of an idea became a truth, mm. right? Like it, it, it's like, yes, I, I, it was like me with adopting change. It was just like, I always believe that things just happen to us. Right. And it, I was always just a byproduct of my situation and nothing was my fault. Right. <laughs> you know, it was 
everybody else. No responsibility. No, right? none, yeah. right? And yeah. and then I remember taking ownership, like really just saying, okay, that I'm not pointing my fingers at anybody. I know exactly what I've done to get here. You know, and it's all me. And that's so, empowering, right? When it is we blame it on everybody yes. else. Man, yeah. life's easy. Like, oh, I'm just here because my uh my girlfriend left me. And it's like, what mm. you know, country music, I always rip on country music, but it's like you know, I'm drinking long neck bottles to forget her. I mean, that's essentially most 80% of country music. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, hey, dumbass, why do you think she left? Yeah. She left because of your, you, you know what I mean? Like take some ownership, right? That's right. And, that's right. And that's another piece. It's how can we take ownership of our lives? Because we own our lives. Mm. We don't own other people's lives. But so yet true. we try to, you know what I mean? Like- well, and it's there's is a lot of false confidence, right? Like, and, and it's usually built around a lot of biases. And uh, <laughs> I, like I know myself too. I, I sometimes, you, you know, knowing just enough is enough <laughs> to make you feel like you know all of it. Right. Do, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's that's that that since gone. I forget what the the term is, but there was that uh, study that they did around this, and it, it's all around biases and how biases influence us in our lives. Like even confirmation bias is another one. You know, like and for those that aren't familiar, confirmation bias. It, it was amazing when I really learned about this. I was like, oh my gosh, I do this all the time. We where look for where what we agree with, yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you have a certain belief, especially a belief about yourself, and this is where I find that shows up for me is you, you form this belief. This idea that, and you accept it as a truth about yourself. Well, now that you've accepted that belief, we then seek out proof to validate that belief. We start to ignore yes. anything that might point to a different direction, yes. you know, to the opposing view, we ignore selectively, <laughs> you know, and we, we favor anything that provides more validation that our initial belief is true. And they call this confirmation bias. And, and, it, and it affects, like we see it in politics. <laughs> we see it in finances. We, we see it everywhere. We and, especially see it, so, uh, and sorry to interrupt, yeah, but, no, please, but social ahead. media. Like that's, yes, that's what yes, these algorithms yes. are. It's not some right. like cybernetic demon, you know, right. that's like, well, I'm going to hijack your mind. It's because this is what you're looking at. Yeah. And, and it, you know, social right. media understands how the brain works, right? Because, right. I mean, it's made by humans. And it's like, well, let's feed you more of that because that's what you like, right? Exactly. Like if I was watching stoner movies on Netflix, why am I surprised to see that suggestions for me are also half-baked the film? Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, and, and there's this piece of cognitive dissonance that I think yeah. you yeah. wanted to talk about. So what, what does that mean to you? Well, remember, we, we sort of talked a bit about this idea of success, right? Like, and I think most of us will agree that when we think about our future and our future selves, we're always going to try to think about it in a very positive light. We want to think about growth, about progress, you know, in, in many different areas. And, and I think we often attach our understanding of success to mean the attainment of those things, right? At least for me, you know, when I was coming up with a, my own subjective definition of what success was, I was modeling mentors, especially in the business space, you know, for me, it, success was always tied to professional development. It was status around career, you know, and very much my ego 
was attached and my, my sense of identity was attached to who I was at my previous role, my previous professional career of 17 years, you know, reaching a C-level in a company, being a founder. Like I attached so much value, uh, personal value to, to that thing that was outside of me, right? Like this, I allowed it to define a lot of who I was. And, and I would often at times, you know, as I'm defining what it meant for be success and having certain financial goals, certain stuff goals. And when I call it stuff goals, I'm like, we want a house, we want cars, we want stuff and to fill our life with, you know, I want the kids going and doing certain programs. Like we hide behind that. Oh man, it was exhausting. Yeah. And, and so when you think about this idea of cognitive dissonance, it, just to simplify the understanding for people, it's like, I, so here I had this idea of who I was wanting to be. And then I had who I was on the day to day, who I was actually showing up as the things I was actually doing. Mm. And the further that these two ideas were apart from one another, <laughs> it basically was like me digging a chasm. Mm. And in this chasm, I just filled it with stuff because it, it just provided me a lot of pain. It made, made me feel like the further I got away, the further it was I was ever going to get there. Like it, it was like, I'm never going to have that level of success. I'll, I'll never attain whatever it is I'm believing to be successful. And so that creates a lot of pain. It creates a whole lot of feelings of like, why am I even doing this? You know, like this is I'll stupid. never get like, there, I'm, right? I'm never going to get there. So what's the point? And, and so that realization creates a lot of like, oh my gosh, I feel really lost. And that's really what it was. It was a lot of loss, a lot of stress, a little bit of anxiety. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm still going through the paces, still right. showing up at work. I'm putting on that strong, happy, confident face, you know? And meanwhile, as soon as an opportunity would arise for me to, to let off steam, to escape from my reality, I took mm -hmm. it. And for me, it was alcohol, which would lead to narcotics use, which also led to me being promiscuous, you know, being with women that weren't my wife. And I am not proud of any of those, but it happened and it happened regularly. You know, so this is, gosh, right in my late twenties and early thirties, it really got bad. You know, my kids were both under the age of 10 at the time. And, you know, here I was thinking that I'm a dad. I want to be a great dad. I always thought I'll be a great dad. You know, I'm going to be an amazing partner and a husband. And I'm going to, you know, so all these attachments to these different ideas that that would attach my identity to. And I just never felt like I was actually getting there. And I because like you were never getting there, that just, it was a spiral, right? right? And just right. this endless, like I'll call them all, it was just a circle round and round and round and round, not going anywhere, but it was actually more of a downward spiral, you know? And uh, because it just, it kept getting worse and worse. And, and, you know, the periods of me saying, Oh, I'll never do that again. And then mm -hmm. doing it again, like the lapse was becoming far less. Um, the, the time span between me getting right. to that moment where it's like, oh gosh, oh shit, I just screwed up again. I'm sorry, babe. I'll never do that again. Oh gosh, I'll never drink again. Like, no, that won't happen again. Like, I rode off a car. I should have died that night. I fell asleep at the wheel driving home after drinking, you know? And I don't really, I, I don't, I don't really shared this because uh, <laughs> kind of I'm ashamed of it but it, the statute of limitations now well gone on this one <laughs> so I, I can let it go but right. um, I mean I should have died that night and you would think that almost dying falling asleep at the wheel because I've had too much to drink and waking up literally inches from a tree trunk I, I, I still have no idea how I survived yeah. you would think that would be a wake-up call to make some changes meanwhile it wasn't it did I was great for about six weeks 
And then right back. It was like, I forgot that that even happened. And was, and was this, this, this sort of um, substance use, was this being yeah. fed by this attachment to these ideals? It, it was definitely not helping the situation. Right. But anything, you have to realize all of a sudden, it's like a plug and play solution, right? Like all of a sudden I was attaching certain stress and anxiety and a certain, like these negative emotions. And all of a sudden I had this, you know, that, that, that would be my trigger. The response, the habit, my choice, my choice. It was always a choice. And I want people to understand this. Like I, I use the term addiction very loosely um, because I never felt that I was out of control. Mm. I was always fully aware of my choices, but I placed far more value in alcohol and drugs and those choices than I was on my life that I had at the time. You know, my relationship with my wife, my family, my business, like the life that I had built. <laughs> I placed way more value on this escapism than I did on my life. And, and I chose to do that all the time, like regularly. And, and, I, and I think too, crazy, it, you know? tell me what you think about this, but yeah, please. You say like, oh yeah, I had control over it. And, and, you know, but because you're living it, you don't mm -hmm. see it. Like, that's right. It's, yeah. it's, it's like, uh, it's really easy to understand how people are being manipulated when you're not the one being manipulated. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. when you watch news and if you can watch it without being, uh, you, without reacting, right. Mm. Without being pulled in a direction, but being, um, equanimous. I, mm -hmm. I always say that yeah. word wrong, but anyways, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but then you start to see, hold on, wait a second. So for example, with the drugs and the alcohol, because you were living it, you were in it, you couldn't see how it was derailing your life. You thought you had a grasp over it. But then, and this is what I, I, I want to hear is there was a moment where something clicked and you were able to see yourself mm -hmm. outside of this. Is that is that kind of what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So what was what <laughs> was know? the breaking point? What was yeah. the, the moment of truth for you? It was on New Year's Day. Uh, it'll be almost, it'll be 11 years this January 1st, 11 years ago, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't recall how I got home that night. And actually the wee hours of the morning, my wife had already left the party. I was already at the point where I was very intoxicated and, and my wife would often shut down when I would get to that point, which was a sign. Of course she shut down. She doesn't want to be around that. I wasn't paying attention to her. I wasn't, you know, I was never a bad drunk and as if I'm giving myself uh, yeah. <laughs> like, and sorry, I'm not saying that to be like, uh, I, I, I had a nickname. It was like fun guy die. Right. Yeah. Like, because I was the fun guy when I would drink, I would open up. I, a lot of my inhibitions, they would vanish. I become a very different version of myself. And a lot of people, I felt that's who they liked. That's who they wanted to be around more. And so I would, under this expectation, my I was always myself, okay? So just so you know, no one ever said, hey, I like you better when you're drunk. I, right. No one ever said that. It's just what I believed. And and again, confirmation bias. Well, we seem to have more fun when I'm drinking, so it must be true, you know? Like, <laughs> this belief I have in myself, you know, confirmation bias, right? Yeah. And, and this I is all external. Yeah. This is all external. Meanwhile, all external. there's an internal... Dude. And torment it's, uh, and it's going off right like yeah. and, and so here's this morning and i get home and uh or wake up that morning and uh christy's already up with the kids and she's downstairs and um i finally make my way to the kitchen uh, i'll cut a long story short she sat me down and and 
after the conversation, you know, a few minutes in, I could tell that this, you know, I could tell by just the way she looked at me that morning, things were very, very wrong and very different because she's always been the kind of person that when she looks at me, mm. I can tell she sees something in me far greater than I can see myself. And that's always how she's looked at me. She's always been my biggest supporter. She's always been my hero in the corner. You know, that, that coach, that mentor, that person, that's the voice of reason. She's just, you know, like really at the end of the day, we were talking earlier, like what's the relationships that truly matter the most? Like my relationship with my wife is, is all, it's for life. You know, like we're, we're co-creating a life together, like, and, and we're supporting one another to, to, to achieve whatever it is we want to achieve along the way. And it, there's something really beautiful to that. And I, I, I wish that for everybody, you know, and it didn't come to that naturally. And, and so here it is, you know, she's looking at me like, there's no spark there. There's no twinkle. There's no, uh, it was like void, devoid of any emotion, yeah. which apathy. Yeah, and it, it, and it was even beyond apathy. Like it was just like disdain, you know, I was just like, eh, like I can't do this anymore. I could tell like that was the vibe. Right. And uh, so we started talking and, and I couldn't argue with her, you know, even when she made a, the comment, like, you know, this is not an environment that's conducive to raising our daughters in, you know, this is not a healthy environment by any means, you know, and I couldn't defend it. I, I, I couldn't. And, and for once, like I could always give excuses like, oh, I just won't let that happen again. But, you know, she's at that point now. I've done that many, 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 many times before always doing great for a couple of weeks and then right back, you know, as if that one little mistake, it was okay because look at all the good stuff I did the last couple of weeks, you know? So I would justify my, yes. my poor actions based on all this good stuff that I'd done. And, and, yeah. but <laughs> it was amazing that one wrong thing to do, wrong thing for me to do, because I knew it wasn't, good for our relationship yet i would do it anyways expecting that all the good would somehow make it okay or justify it anyways we got to a point you know a lot of crying on both sides i mean it's 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 not a pleasant place to be when you think that okay our relationship's done i'm gonna lose my family my my kids like everything that we've built together is is done you know and knowing that i was the cause of that you're the one responsible i was the one responsible and she asked me a question and this was the question that really shifted my perspective. She said, Die, are you being the type of man that you'd want your daughters to marry? Drop the mic. Like it, it was that question. Like, are you being the type of man that you'd want your daughters to marry? Like, and I knew, Robert, right then and there, I was like, Hell no. If a guy like me at that time showed I'd up, beat the shit out of him. <laughs> they wouldn't even get across the threshold. I'd be like, No. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and yet here I was saying that, but realizing me as their first male role model, mm. their first hero, the first real man in their life, I set the bar and man, I set it low. And then when you start doing a lot of the research around this, you know, especially for those fathers of little girls, you know, <laughs> when you start to look at a lot of the literature and the supporting documentation around it, they are often attracted to those that are, Remind them of their father. Absolutely. So certain characteristics. So I'm like, oh my gosh, no, I'm not being that guy. And it was right then and there, like for myself, similar to like taking full ownership when I was 14 and obese and wanting to change my health, you know, it was like taking full ownership that the next steps are completely in my control and can take me down a completely different path. And am I ready to walk that? Well, yeah, I am. 
And, and, and so what started as a one-year commitment to myself and as well as to my family, I made a commitment to my wife, to my kids. It was like, we got to a point, it's like, this is it. I'm making one, a one-year commitment, no alcohol, which I knew would mean no drugs. And I really hoped it would also mean any of the other n- habits that I had for coping. Mm-hmm. I was making a, a commitment to say no to all that. No more escaping. But what you realize, Robert, very quickly, and I realized this in the first few weeks, was, okay, I had some very, very sturdy crutches that I had learned to walk with. And it was alcohol, largely. Those are my crutches. That was allowing me to just get by. Now I'm taking the crutches away, and I realize I got a pretty gnarly limp. (laughs) And and I am going to have to figure out how to rehab this limp if I'm going to want to ever be able to walk again. Especially you have to learn how crutches. to walk again. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. And so here it was where all of a sudden I realized, I was like, whew, I mean, I can try to do this on my own, but I, I don't see this happening anytime soon. I don't, I honestly knew myself. I was like, I don't, I've tried doing things on my own before like this. Even when I was obese, I was fortunate that I had parents that were supportive of me and willing to support me and the changes I wanted to make for me, as well as there was people around me that I was able to ask help from and they were willing to give me the help. So I knew that I needed that again. I needed support. I needed help. And uh, I found a great counselor. I worked with a great psychologist for a few months. Um, I was doing some relationship counseling. But I, I, you know, rather than working on the external and working on my professionalism and my professional development, which was what I tied to success, I was like, no, 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 that's, I've got to revisit what I believe is success. And, and you know, really revisit what do I value? What are my core values? What are the things that are non-negotiable in my life? And now, you know, you talked about the cognitive dissonance piece. It's like, I'm going to get super clear on this and I'm going to lean into that way more. I'm going to make choices based on those filters. And so with the support of the, you know, these individuals that I had aligned with and started to have some conversations with, started to fill my mind with different topics and, and especially guarding my association because a lot of the people I hung out with at the time they liked hanging out with fungi die. Have they, a drink, man. Have a drink. Dude, I remember the first time going to a UFC with all my buddies, you know, and uh, I wasn't drinking. I was drinking. And at the time, I used to drink diet soda. And I, uh, there's a whole nother issue there <laughs> with my health that arose because all of a sudden I was consuming a lot of diet soda. And I all of a sudden had all these other health complications that I never had before pop up. And it actually was from the increased aspartame. Yeah, that's so, dude, it was crazy. But that's that's another conversation. Yes. And eventually yeah, 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 it switched yeah, yeah. to, to um, and just a mental note for everybody on here. If you're looking to curtail and cut out alcohol and you still want to be social, club soda with lime. It's awesome. Bubbly Plus you get free snack. refills. <laughs> so, oh yeah. 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 Dude, I love it. So th- th- I switched to that eventually. I originally, I was going Pellegrino and some of the other bubblies and I was like, dude, this is expensive. This is like more than the alcohol. <laughs> I, I'm just gonna go club soda, you know, and, and yeah. I've never gone back since club soda yeah. is my choice. But regardless, you know, I realized very quickly that, that they were far more uncomfortable than I was. Yes. They didn't know how to respond. Because also I was craving deeper conversation, deeper connection. Yeah. All of a sudden the surface conversations that were entertaining before, because the more we drank, the more entertaining those conversations were. And it didn't matter if we remembered what we talked about anyways, because we were there with different intentions, you know, and all of a sudden I'm there now much more aware and just didn't feel like a fit anymore. And, and so I needed new association. I needed to get around new types of people that challenged me, but in a positive way. And I was fortunate. I found organizations like Toastmasters, 
you know, and it was great. It was instrumental in me, one, regaining a lot of my own confidence. Also, I wanted to develop some leadership skills. And for those that don't know, Toastmasters, it's a nonprofit. It's all around the world. They're everywhere. Literally, every major city's got a Toastmasters. And it's an organization that's geared to helping people become more effective communicators and better leaders. Mm-hmm. That's it. So also you get around an environment like that where all these people are coming there with that same intention and they want to support each other on that journey. I was like, whoa, it was a completely different type of group than I'd ever yeah. been around, you know? And because it's nonprofit, no one's paid to be there. It's all volunteers. So, you know, there's no, no hidden agendas, right? Like I've gone to networking events, but there's mm-hmm. always an agenda. Of course. Right? There's always a purpose of why you're going to a networking event. It's hopefully make a connection. Hopefully eventually that drums into a sale or some sort of income. You know, we, so we monetize that ROI <laughs> where my return on my investment at Toastmasters was the more I showed up to serve others, the more value I was getting in my own life. Right. I was like, whoa, I love this. This is cool. And, and you had to excited. redefine yourself. You had to redefine had yourself. To. And, it, and it's not like something you do overnight. It's not like you just sit down, I'm going to have a coffee. And by the time I'm done this coffee, I'm going to have it all figured out. <laughs> you know, like it's, it takes a little bit more than that. But yeah. I had a year, right? I made a commitment one year. And, and dude, you remove those crutches, you got to learn to walk pretty quick. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I always say to people like, yeah, I made a one year commitment, but it was only going to be a year. And I was fine if I was going to start drinking again, you know, a year later. And, but then the year came and I'm like, wow. I've grown more personally as well as professionally in these last 12 months than I think I'd done in the previous decade. Like I became that aware. My relationships were better. I, I felt more connected to the things I did every day. I started finding things outside of work that grew me as a person, as an individual, as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as a community leader. And I started to realize I, I got way more satisfaction and enjoyment from that. I also got into blogging. I got into just leveraging social media that was emerging as a tool to support and help others create a greater impact in the world. Cause I knew that it was something that I felt called to do. And it was crazy. Cause all of a sudden, the more I try to serve people, the more value I found for myself, you know? So some people would say like, I, I had shifted, you know, one addiction for another. I don't look at it that way. Cause I don't feel I'm addicted to anything. I can choose to do it or not do it. You know, like right. I don't ever feel that I'm out of control and I'm doing things without having the awareness that I'm doing them. That's a good point. Yeah. The, the, the control piece, like, cause you could be a workaholic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I was, oh, yeah. trust me, I was, yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, it's, it's recognizing what is success to me. Right. What, so what, what, mean? what At is the end success? of my life? Like, what do I, well, are you familiar with Bronnie Ware and the five regrets of the dying? Have you ever heard no, of No, tell so me about that. It is awesome. Like, this is one of those things, like, I often equate it to, to, to Morpheus with Neo mm-hmm. in, in uh, The Matrix. Remember when he offers him the blue or the red pill, right? Yeah, and yeah. he chooses, oh, I'm going to take this pill because, but, but realize everything will change truth. after you've taken it. Yes. Well, I had a similar experience with Bronnie Ware and some of her work. And her work that she has, she has a TED Talk, but it's based on the book she published called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And what is crazy is, is here's this lady on the other side of the planet. She's in Australia. And she was assisting people, making that final journey that we all got to take on our own anyways, you know, end of life. She was there to support people as, as a RN, as a nurse, as a care aide, really there to help people be comfortable. And what she found was that there's a lot of people, it truly is the last journey we all have to do. And we have to do it on our own. 
right? Like it's, it's, it's just such an interesting thing. And I have a different awareness around this and probably similar to your experience, Robert, like I lost my father three and a half years ago to pancreatic cancer. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I had those last six months to be around him, mm-hmm. you know, during that end of life. And it taught me a lot, you know, hidden, just being around him during that and to have that experience opened my eyes to so many other things, especially as it relates to my life and right. the things I want to do. And coming back to the five regrets of the dying, she, she was having conversations with these people. And, and often that question would come up, like, is there anything that you regret not doing it with your life? And what she was so amazed at was there was five regrets that almost everybody had. And many of them had multiples of these. So they kept showing up over and over again. And you have to start to wonder, well, if these are the most common regrets of the dying, now that I know them, I can live a life where I don't have those same regrets on my, at the end of life. And, and so here, here's a few of them. Okay. I wish I'd allowed myself the opportunity to live the life I wanted to live, not the life others expected me to live, right? Like this idea of we're always doing things to, to, based on what others want, right? I know when I went to university, <laughs> originally it was because I hoped it would make my dad proud. And I went into the sciences because my dad was a veterinarian. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll be a vet too. That will definitely make my dad very proud of me. You know, we'll be able to spend more time together and uh, yeah. Anyways, I hated the sciences and, uh, <laughs> and I learned very quickly that, no, I was doing that for him, but I had to get to that realization. I had to go through the steps to, to get to that point. And funny thing was when I brought it up to my dad later, he was like, I don't care what you do. I just want you to be happy. I remember him saying that. And I was just like, oh, it would have saved us both a lot of time and money. <laughs> we had this conversation. Why did you tell Sarah. me that? Yeah. I know. I know. Right. But, uh, but, but it was just one of those learnings. So that's one of them. And uh, one of the other ones is I, I wish I'd allowed myself to be happier. You know, it, it talks about happiness being a choice, right? That's what's implied by that statement. You know, I wish I allowed myself to be happier because I think we often compromise on happiness. At least this yeah. is what I've observed in my life. I'll compromise my happiness in certain moments. Like I'll accept being less happy if it means that maybe I'm doing something for somebody else. Right. Or like, especially when it came to my career, I would often forego my own happiness based on what I thought was response, my responsibility professionally. And which was weird, you know, here I am compromising my own values based on what I believe is demanded of me and expected of me from this career. And often I, it was just because I put those expectations on me. Right. Right. Um, I wish I'd stayed in, I wish I stayed in touch with my friends or, or, or closer connection or closer contact with friends and family and stuff like that. Like basically it implies that people at the end of life really wish that they had stayed in better contact with some of those relationships that they valued at certain points in their life. You know, but, but that it does take an effort. I mean, how many of us have found that? Like even now with all this excess time that we've had in this last year, it's like how many of us have taken the extra time to, to reach out to people? I mean, we have the time. I mean, social media usage, Netflix, like you look at just the bandwidth increase in consumption of of streaming content in the last 12 months, we clearly have the time to be online. But how much of that time has been spent rekindling relationships or getting to know others or or reaching out to others? Like I'm guilty of this too. Hey, don't, I'm not here to say I've been awesome. I've made contact with all my friends. No, I haven't. Right. But I think a lot of it comes down to this, this idea of mortality. Right. Like until we've had an experience where we've seen firsthand end of life. Yes. You know, and I can imagine your experience with your father has provided a, a lot of influence into what happened after that. Right. 
the idea of impermanence yes yeah yeah and just i always think you know in in my own life time is a hell of a lot better than money yeah and what you do yeah. with the time that you have now of course you know money can make you know it's 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 what we bought into no pun intended but at the end of the day you know at the end of life what did you do with the time that you were given and i think that that's a huge regret it's like wow i was you know cats in the cradle right that song i love that yeah, song right. yeah and uh and and i'm always mindful of that like with my daughter because i do this this is very important to me yeah. and there are times when i'm like oh my like, am I sacrificing time with my family to do this, right? And that's what I'm always trying to be aware of. However, by doing this, I'm a lot more of a joy to be around. Yes, I love that you say that, right? Isn't that true? Like, there's certain, I tend to work with a lot of fathers, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I know that this is common for a lot of us as men, that it, it is that hunter-gatherer piece that we talked about at the beginning, right? That, that desire to want to protect and provide for our families. I, I, I think it's right into our DNA, you know, mm -hmm. as men. Like, we want to do that. And I'm not saying it's just a male thing. I think it's a common thing for yeah. any gender. But you're speaking right? to your experience. Yeah, yeah, but in my experience, especially from my perspective and what I've observed, especially with my friends and my connections I've made and had these conversations with, like, we are very much career seen as that as, as that vehicle, right? Like that there's, there's a lot of identity attached to career. And I know it's affected a lot of men, especially some of the men I've had conversation with over this last year who have, you know, lost their careers. And so there's a deep, there's a big hole that's been created, especially around identity and how to connect, right? And how to provide. And, and, and so there's this loss of identity that, that many have experienced. And I'll be honest, even at the beginning of the year, like I had, my business changed a lot. You know, what I projected and what I had on the books ready to go for that year. I was like excited. But, you know, come mid-March, I was like 80% of my projected revenues were gone for the wow. year. Wow. 80%. I was like, whoa, hello. <laughs> you know, and, and you can focus on all the things that you've lost. And trust me, I had a good pity party for about a week. Mm. I did. I had a week. I gave myself a week to just like bitch, moan, and complain. Yeah. My wife and I call it BMW moments, bitch moan one, you know? So it's rather than I'm taking a moment. That. Yeah, man, we took it for a week. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, or at least I did. And my, my wife's great. Like she, she had her job and it was fairly secure. And so they just pivoted and they started working from home. But I like how you gave it a timeline. Do you know I what did. I mean? Yeah. Instead of like, like maybe that's another piece of the mental health mm. wellness that we don't actually give ourselves time to process right. and to grieve, right? Sure. Like, okay, you know, uh, for example, music. I'm going to listen to REM's Everybody Hurts <laughs> and then yeah. I'll be okay. Yeah. You know, I'm going to grant myself that guilty, well, I don't want to say guilty pleasure because, but I'll give myself that, you know. For sure. And, but then I when I'm done, yeah. let's get back at it. Yeah. Right? I was, I was inspired, uh, Jennifer Aniston of all people, you know, it, there was an interview she did and my wife shared it with me because I'm not, I mean, other than friends, I, I sure. couldn't tell you much about Jennifer Aniston, right? <laughs> That's my experience with her. But I, she was married to Brad Pitt. And there's this interview of her when she's, her and Brad separated and, and ultimately divorced uh, that interviewed her about the, the, the thing and, and about that experience. And she talked about giving herself one day to, to just mm. 
cry, to grieve, to, to just like gave herself permission for a day to just Let it do out. whatever she needed to do, you know? And, and, but then after that day was done, okay, it's done moving on. Like, but, and I, I was so impressed by that. I was just like, the, just the idea of giving yourself the space to, to mourn, to yes. grieve, to bitch moan and whine and complain and externalize and just like, you know, let yourself go and, and feel those emotions rather than avoid the emotions yes. or just distract yourself from feeling those emotions. That kinetic energy, just yes. letting, like, I love, I love heavy metal yeah. uh, and just like, yeah. <laughs> and there's something about that that is yeah. like, ooh, okay, I feel good. Let's go. You know, and people wow. are like, did that just happen? You know, that's impressive, man. It's, yeah, uh, yeah it, I'm a little bit different on that front. Um, <laughs> I do appreciate good old classic rock with some yeah. good drum and bass, but uh, the, the heavy metal, I've never been able to, but I worked with a guy that was totally into it and he was a professional bodybuilder. And, mm. uh, Man, him and his workouts. Like you could see the intensity yeah. and that music just channeled through him. <laughs> was, and was he a super was pleasant inspiring. person afterwards? Uh, after his workout, he was always great. They, yeah. During his workout, you couldn't talk to yeah. him. Like it just, he's in his own space. But that's also why he, he was at the level that he was and he achieved what he had. You know, um, it, was, it was really amazing to watch. And I found it quite inspiring, but it was, it's also just a different, just different, right? It, it, different than me. That's all. And, and uh, it wasn't something that I could do just based on I don't want to do it. <laughs> but uh, I do have to say, my goodness, it's pretty incredible. You know, now, yeah. you, you talk about um, your father passing away three years ago and, and with this new sort of vigor for life and, and, and growth how was, what did you learn from that experience of your father passing? Well, I learned that, you know, I, I told you before that, uh, you know, a lot of my belief systems were modeled around just watching my dad. Yeah. Right. And, and we weren't that close. Uh, I'll be honest. Like we just weren't that close. Like we, we didn't have a super close relationship. I moved away at 18 out to Vancouver from outside of Toronto. And uh, we saw each other probably maybe seven, eight times over the next 20 years. Right. Mm. Like it, it, and we talk every once in a while, maybe once a month, six weeks, more often it would be like an email. Um, and we didn't have a lot of tough conversations, but again, my mom raised us largely you know, we'd see my dad every once in a while. And so there was this just a different perspective on that. And um, <laughs> it was weird because I remember, you know, he, he became quite bedridden, obviously, just based on the condition, you know, the pancreatitis, uh, sorry, that went, went from pancreatitis into pancreatic cancer and just how it started to spread into other parts of his body, it just it shut him down, right? So he, he went from a guy that was 190 pounds, six foot one, to like 130 pounds, you know, and, and barely cracking six feet and just just became frail, you know, and seeing this in front of my eyes. And he was a young 72. Like you wouldn't, you would have met my dad and you wouldn't think he was in his 70s. Like just, he, he always disappeared healthy, you know, and uh, until he wasn't. And even here at the end of life, I still found that there was a lot of conversations I wanted to have, things I wanted to say, but I didn't say. And so I have these conversations still regularly with my dad, even though he's not here. But I learned through that experience, like, yeah, we, we, we are here for a very short period of time. And, and we have a lot of control over what we do while we're here. You know, we have a lot of say in that. 
but it's the conversations that we don't say that I think are the ones that we often regret the most. Absolutely. And, and so that's, yeah, it's a regret I'm gonna have to live with. But I learned from this because I know how it makes me feel. And I know of the things that if my dad was alive today, what I would say, I would say it no problem now. I've had to do a lot of my own work, my own inner work, you know, over the last few years, you know, reconciling what it's like to have a life without my dad now and, and the missed opportunities that I had, you know, and uh, the conversations I didn't have. Well, I'm going to have them. So that's, that was some of the biggest takeaways I took from that experience. And, and I love my dad. And I always will. But, but we had a very specific relationship, you know, then we were both okay with it. And I think that's the thing to take away is like, we were both okay with it. We, yes. we connected we and we understood this, each yeah. other in a certain way. I know he loved me. He knows I loved him, but even though we may not have said it, it was felt, it was there. And uh, my dad was rather stoic that way, you know? So um, yeah, it's just interesting, man. It's uh, it's, it's interesting. That, that, thanks for the, the question. Cause it's uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And, and I have another question related to it. What were words he said to you during this period that stuck with you? You know, a lot of our conversation was just around just being happy, you know, enjoying life. Just those moments, like just being really present in the moment, you know, sometimes even reliving some of the old stories, like old trips that we'd been on, experience that we had, my brother and I with my dad. Um, him talking a bit about some of his travels, some of the places that he really wanted to see, you know, even sometimes just sharing and watching a movie together during that time, you know, it was that extra time together just to enjoy a moment. Right. I, I think it wasn't so much what we said, but just us being present for one another. Yeah. I, I, I think that had more impact because like I said, the, the previous 25 years, it wasn't a lot of that time. Intentional time just to sit with each other, just to be in each other's presence without that's having what to have force a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So that certainly helped. Um, yeah, weird, huh? <laughs> the words that always stick out to me that my dad said to me, the last words he ever said, <clears throat> were, uh, I'll fly with the Eagles. <laughs> and people, uh, I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan and not because of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but that's why in, in all throughout my life, Eagles have always been there. Bald Eagles, you know, he loved bald Eagles. Mm. And you say that your dad can't hear you and mm. I believe he can. Uh, thanks. I do too. I, I really do. I mean, I know energy just changes. So I, I like to believe that uh, he's out there still looking, you know, looking yeah. down and, uh, or looking up. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it works, but <laughs> uh, wherever our... he may be, he, he might. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll, but I, I truly feel just as connected now, you know, and even more so as I reconcile my own emotions around right. my dad and how it's affected me being a man and, and showing up for my family. And, and, and cause I still recognize some of the habits that I was modeled for my dad and myself. And right. they're not necessarily ones that I want to have, mm. you know, being able to have some vulnerable conversations with the women in my life, you know, being vulnerable with my kids. Doesn't it feel great to tell your kids you love them? It really does. Doesn't that feel great? It Doesn't does. it feel great it feels, to tell people you love them and awesome. you appreciate them? Like, yeah. wh why have we held that back for so long? You know, like, <laughs> seriously, you know, it's, uh, yeah, man, 
It's been a great conversation. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I'm looking at the time now. And I'm like, well, I got to go uh, check in on my family. Oh, so, yeah, I know. So I, 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 <laughs> I, I want to leave you with an opportunity to tell us about uh, what, what it is that you do and how people can, uh, can find you. Access well, what it is that you do. Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for the, the conversation, Robert. And I, I know we both got places to go right now. And, my, uh, my daughter's going to come oh, say hi. But, but, but keep, yeah. yeah. No, oh, I was going to say, I, my main focus in life is just to help people get more out of their own lives, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I do this a number of different ways. Uh, but the way I like to, to position it is, you know, most people need support with fitness, nutrition, just creating some healthy lifestyle habits. So there's lots of support mechanisms in place and protocols that I help people design their best life around because again it's all about yeah right now we want to have a certain result but what about 5 10 20 years from now how do you want to be living life like you with your daughter you know 20 years from now what kind of dad do you want to be you know what kind of husband do you want to be like really having these bigger conversations so you have a lot more clarity and emotional connection to the things that you do every day who do you want to be not who do who do they do who do they want you to be you know who do you want to be that's right. right. That's right. And it's, and, and it's just creating a space for that to happen. And, yes. and a lot of times there's conversations around that and, and they're not always the most comfortable conversations to have, but they mm. are clarifying conversations. Cause my biggest thing with people is I help you find a whole lot of clarity. That clarity breeds confidence. And with confidence, it's a lot easier to take action. And, and because you, you, you have confidence that you're going the right direction, that the, right. the results will follow through the habits. So um, anybody, I just tell everybody, just reach out and have a, let's have a conversation, you know, reach out to me on social, on my website, there's 1500 articles there. It's just diamondwell.com. And my name is the same handle I have on all my, my, my platforms, you know, but Instagram, Facebook, easiest way to get a hold of me. And uh, just just have a conversation. I, I do run a, a weekly men's group. Uh, it's open to anybody and everybody. There's no cost. You just got to show up and be willing to to be present for the 90 minutes that we meet. And uh, just a wonderful community of guys. And I always just say, just reach out to me and I'll send you the invite. So, so how do they how do they get into that? One more. Just time. send me a message. Uh, right now, we we filter it. And what I mean by that is, there's me and another guy that that co-facilitate these mm-hmm. gatherings mm-hmm. and uh, just to ensure that uh, we, we, we don't just have anybody unannounced showing up. Uh, we have a yes. registration process just to, to, to make sure you get onboarded the right way, but it just starts with a conversation. So anybody that's interested in connecting with other men, uh, if you're a man and you want to connect with other men and have some, some, just some amazing conversations and, and not feel so alone, uh, please let me know. I'm, I'm happy to do that. And uh, come this spring, 2021, I actually have a TEDx talk that I've been invited to give on this Congratulations. conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So stay tuned. There'll be a lot more coming on this conversation, this topic. And uh, I just really want to thank you, Robert, for, for providing me the opportunity to meet with you today, to have this conversation. I feel like we just scratched the surface. So, uh, we did. <laughs> uh, I know we'll, we'll, we'll probably have a lot more conversations around we this. We have to future. do this again. We have to do this again. Di, thank you so much for uh, your authenticity, for being who you are, and uh, demonstrating the powers of, of being yourself. Thanks, Robert. And thank yeah. you, you know, honestly, for, for just creating this space. And uh, I, I'm just looking forward to, to getting to know you better, too. So uh, I know we'll, we'll have a follow up to this. And uh, listen, have a, a wonderful holiday with your family. And uh, thanks again for the opportunity. Well, we'll have to grab a uh, club soda and lime sometime. <laughs> yes. <hell yeah. laughs> and I was going to say, anytime you want to walk the seawall, grab a coffee or whatever, man, just let me know. Uh, I'm Got totally it. down with that. And uh, we can always do stuff that's social distance and uh, it's all good. But Is I'm it- looking forward.
Is it snowing where you are? Apparently it's snowing here. Uh, not really. No, it's it's more rain right now. It's not oh. cold enough. It's not sticking yet. So we're okay. Because okay. here I, I, I'm in Surrey, the Badlands. Yeah. And oh. uh, yeah. And uh, but it's it's like a blizzard right now. So serious. So it's coming your way, man. It might be coming your way. But hey, Di, thank you so much. Thanks, Robert. You and your family, you take care. You as well. And I'll talk to you later. Once again, that was the wonderful Di Manuel. Just a beautiful guy. And I truly appreciate him uh, being on our show to share his story on the importance of stepping into your purpose of being the most authentic person of yourself, not only for others, but for you. So my question to you, the listener, and of course to myself is, am I stepping into who I want to be? Am I truly myself? And what is it that I need to change to achieve that? I appreciate your time in, in listening and following with us in our journey. And I'm probably wrong about everything. And, uh, I hope you have a wonderful day and I look forward to being with you again soon. Take care. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant and I'm probably wrong about everything.